Welcome to the Church on a Hill podcast. This is Pastor Corey Lahiri, and the Church on a Hill podcast is a ministry of Palouse Federated Church in Palouse, Washington. We are glad you joined us for this podcast, and we hope that that this will bless you. The Lamb of God. That the Lamb of God is a important theme in the Book of Revelation, and if you've been part of our series, you probably noticed that. So. Some wild things happen in Revelation. I mean, a dragon shows up and beasts from the sea and the earth and all kinds of stuff. But the lamb keeps coming back. And the lamb keeps winning. Even though the lamb was slain, the lamb is alive and well. And we're going to see that again today. So we're in the book of Revelation. If you brought a Bible with you or we have Bibles under the chairs somewhere near you or you can feel free to use your app or device. And we're in the final book of the Bible in and we're in chapter 13, and then 14 really is where we're today. We're going to review 13 a little bit that we did last week. But this book of Revelation that we're doing, um, and by the way, you can use the inside of the program for your notes. There's a, there's a good outline there to take notes if you'd like. Uh, this book of Revelation challenges us in many ways. If you've been here for just even a couple of the messages, or you've been here throughout, you know that there's a lot of challenges, challenging images, ideas, questions it makes us ask, and not just questions about the future. When people hear Revelation, uh, they, they think often, oh, it's about the future. What is the, the end times scenarios? Which, you know, it definitely has something to say about that. But it also is, is making us ask questions about our identity here in the present. What are we trusting in now? Are we trusting in the powers of this age, right? Uh, the Babylons or the Romes of this age. What do we trust in? What do I identify with most? Do I identify with a worldly leader the most or with the lamb? Do I identify with the lamb more than anyone else? Who do I follow with my ultimate allegiance? Uh, Revelation is, is causing uh, the church and believers to ask that. Who do I really give my allegiance to? And am I willing, as many of the early Christians did, am I willing to die for my allegiance to the Lord? Am I willing to suffer for that? Uh, and, and we need to understand that the history of this book encouraged many who were being persecuted, past and present, to, to live for Jesus and be willing to die for Jesus. Those are big questions. Those are not minor questions, and they're not just questions about the future, right? They're questions about, am I willing to, to live in the kingdom of God, in the here and now, loving my Lord, loving my neighbor, loving my enemy, even if someone says, you've got to stop that, or I'm going to kill you, Right? It's a big deal. In the book of Revelation, God gave it as a gift to encourage believers and churches to, to endure, to persevere, to keep the faith no matter what comes. So it's asking the questions of us about our identity and making us ask, does my life reflect and represent my God? That's a real simple question. Does my life, to what degree does my life reflect and represent the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I, am I looking a bit more like the lamb every day or a bit more like the beasts, right? Um, what is my true foundational identity and who am I becoming more like? The beasts, the dragons, these are, these are ugly pictures. We're going to see a horror of Babylon later coming in Revelation. Look forward to that. Uh, but am I, am I, is my image starting to look more like that? Or am I looking more like the peaceful, sacrificial, loving, self-giving lamb who gave himself for the sake of others? Because who I am becoming now, who I worship, what I behold, and what's most important to me in this life now, tells me a lot about my end times personally. I mean, we can have all the theories we want about the end times of Revelation. What about your end times of who you're going to be in eternity? Who are you becoming like? What you behold is who you become someone said. And if you're beholding the things of this earth and the, the selfishness of this earth, then you'll become like that. Those are the things that matter most to your identity. Revelation is making us ask all these deep, deep questions. Who are you? Is that the basis or the, ba the foundation of a lot of them? So the answer to these who are you type questions, a lot of that is up to you and how you listen to God's word and take it in. So let's pray as we hear God's word, or we're prepared to hear God's word together, let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, dear Lord. For you are truly our rock and redeemer. You are our lamb. 
You are the Lord. You are the author and perfecter. And you alone should we rightly fear. You alone should we fully follow. You alone should our lives be founded upon, Lord. You are the root of our identity. We stand on you. And so I pray for each person here and online listening to this, that they would, they would really be praying for themselves. That they could hear what you want to tell them today. Lord, that they'd be praying for others that are hearing this, that, that your word would be taken in as, as real food for the soul. That you could encourage people to, to have right, renewed identities in you and not the identities that the world offers. And Lord, we, I ask that we could pray for, for me and other preachers that we would rightly declare your word. Your word is our lamp, our light, Lord. So may, may your word be declared rightly. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, we're going to go through section by section here in a bit of chapter 14, but just a, a brief uh, bit on chapter 13, because uh, chapter 14... It, this is a little bit of Revelation scholarship. Chapter 14 follows chapter 13. Okay, all right. So, uh, and what we see in chapter 13 is we see beasts who are working with the dragon. And they, uh, there's all kinds of theories about these beasts and do they res- represent a false prophet and a false government and, and, a, and a false Christ? And the answer is yes. Like all these things that, that have happened and will happen of of beastly leaders and beastly movements that are trying to get us to be selfish and not give glory to God and not love our neighbor and not reconcile and love our enemies, uh, these things of the world. And they're luring people. We see in chapter 13, they're luring people away from worship of God and wholeness with God. And it looks grim, okay? It looks grim. But as we we remember chapter 13 with all these, these beasts and that they work for the dragon... Remember a verse that I want, I want to tell you, maybe you've heard of it before, maybe you haven't, but 1 John 4.4, 4, which I believe John also wrote, says this, 1 John 4.4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so when you hear about the dragon or the beast, and you think, wait, the spirit of God that's in me, simple old me, is greater than these forces out in the world. And elsewhere in the scripture it says, the same spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is with you. Right? So don't be scared of these images or scared off from Revelation because it's supposed to be encouraging the, the same spirit that, that's going to conquer these things in, in, in the big plan is with you now. So whatever challenges or beasts or, or things that try to lure you away from doing the good in your daily life, temptations to sin or whatever it is, you have a spirit, the spirit of God that can help you. Right? So remember that. And that, that's going to help us prepare for this great contrast to the beast that we're going to see here in chapter 14 with the lamb and the 144,000. So I want to read to you from chapter 14, the whole chapter. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. For they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment is come and worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. It's about 184 miles. This is the word of the Lord. All right, there are a lot of images here again. Right, And I want to do a quick summary of chapter 14, so maybe it's less confusing in some ways, but we we can break it into three parts. Verses 1 through 5, we see the vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion, and then we'll deal with verses 6 through 13, these visions of angels, 1, 2, and 3, and there's more angels later, but but, and then verses 14 through 20, we see the vision of the harvesting and harvest towards wrath. So, vision of the Lamb in Mount Zion, which we'll do first, the vision of the three angels, and then the harvesting and the wrath that comes at the end of the chapter. So, verses 1 through 5, we see is a, it's a great contrast from what we saw in chapter 13, where people were getting marked by the mark of the, the beast. They were living in selfish ways, uh, lured into denying the reality of God. And, and now we're seeing that, that there are others who are marked by the Lamb, those who are in the Lamb's book of life, they're marked with his name and the name of the Father, it says, on their foreheads. Now, that doesn't mean that in the future there's going to be, you know, sharpie people walking around. Maybe, I don't know. But, uh, but they, they're identified again. It's about identity. They're identifying with the Lamb. They live to live in the Lamb's way of life, loving God, loving people, trying to practice forgiveness, receiving it and offering it and practicing loving enemies. They're trying to live as Jesus lived in a world that's telling them, don't do that, right? Uh, The strong survive, the weak fail, right? Take what's yours. But people of the Lamb will say, no, I'm marked by the Lamb. And scholar uh, Barclay, a, a great commentary writer, lists five different things that a mark in the ancient world could signify, and I think these are interesting Marks on, on people uh, could signify ownership, who, who owned them, if it was a slave master thing. Uh, but it, it could also mark loyalty, loyalty to a tribe, let's say, or security, dependence, or safety. Think about those. 
Ownership, loyalty, security, dependence, safety. So the, the people who are marked by the lamb are saying, I'm God's. God, God is my, my Lord in charge of me. I, my loyalty is to the Lord, not to empire or to Caesar. My security is in the Lord. Even if you come take me captive, I find my security and my identity, who I am, not in my, you know, where I, if you put me in a jail, so that's not my security. My security is in knowing who I am and who loves me. My dependence is on the Lord, not even my daily bread, but the, every, every word that comes from the Lord. My safety is in the Lord. This, this, is the, this is how the church thought of themselves in early times, right? That, and they were willing to, to risk their very lives to keep loyalty, obedience to the Lamb. And we see the Lamb comes out of Mount Zion. Uh, and this, Mount Zion, of course, in the earthly sense was a... a a place in Jerusalem where the temple was located. And, but what we see here is the heavenly parallel to that as we're getting prepared at the end of Revelation to see the beautiful, beautiful new Jerusalem and the new temple. We're starting to see this, this heavenly revealing uh, of Mount Zion that, that the lamb is in his temple and the temple is really God's people in a way. And the lamb uh, says... That, that there are these 144,000, or he has 144,000 with him. And 144,000 has been debated and misunderstood by many. Uh, but we see this lamb that had been slain, that is alive and well, standing, is leading the 144,000. And this, I believe, symbolizes the whole people of God. There are others who don't think that. There's whole denominations who think some weird stuff about it. But I, the 144,000 to me is a symbolic number that symbolizes the whole people of God. Earlier in Revelation, when it said 144,000, they looked and beheld, and 144,000 was actually hundreds and hundreds of millions. It wasn't just 144,000, okay? 144 is 12 times 12. So like the 12 tribes times 12 apostles, that's 12 times 12, you get 144. And 1,000 is 10 cubed, or 10 times 10 times 10. And, and so this is a very symbolic number saying a full set of God's people. And they're joining together in unity, right? And what are they doing? A repeated theme in Revelation is worship. And that's what they're doing. They're singing with one united voice. And it sounds like nature and music at the same time. Isn't that beautiful? The rushing water and yet harps and just beautiful and unity. And it's this new song that nobody has ever heard before. And, and it's in the throne room of God. They're, they're singing before these, these, these other beings that we heard about earlier in Revelation, this, they're, they're in God's presence worshiping the people of God, singing something together that even the angels couldn't sing. The angels are like, you ever been in church and somebody starts singing a song, and you're like, I don't know this song, and the person, I don't know it either. And, you know, so the, the angels are up there in heaven going, I don't know this song, I don't know it either, Gabriel. And, and, and it's because the people have, have lived through the experience of of, of, of coming to faith in Jesus. They've lived through something different than angelic beings, okay? And they're singing a song that only we, if we could include ourselves as believers in that, can sing. They've been redeemed by the Lamb, and they can sing of it in a way out of their experience. And there will be a new song one day. But I think we need to have new songs in our heart now. It's okay to take this lesson now. And if God gives you a song in your heart to sing, maybe to write down and turn into a real song, or just some song that you're singing, because you're, you're thankful for the love of God, Sing it, right? Maybe it's a song nobody else has sung before. Every song that we sing, you realize at one point was a new song, right? Even the really old songs we sing. At one point was a song that was new and it came from somebody's heart, what the Holy Spirit did in their life. And, and you, you are a part of that new song if you think about it that way. Okay, but you might say, but wait a second, you're skirting around a lot of stuff here, Pastor. The 144,000, it says, are Jewish male virgins. If you're an attentive reader or listener, you saw that, right? They're Jewish male virgins. And you may be sitting here saying, I am not a Jewish male virgin. So what's the deal? How, I'm not going to be singing then. I'm not part of this select group of singers. And there is versions and interpretations of Revelation that see these as a select group of people who are Jewish male virgin saved in a certain end time scenario. And, and if that's the case, I wonder why God gave this message for 2,000 years of Christianity to just know about the select group of 144,000 Jewish male virgins. Like, like, did the first century Christians think, okay, good, now we know this trivia about Jewish male virgins. I, okay, there may be a group of like highly select Jewish male virgins at the end of times in some kind of end time scenario. I'm just gonna put that on the shelf and say I'm not smart enough to figure that out. But what I will say is in the present, what I think this symbolically means is that it's, it's, and it's not a statement against women, it's not a statement against marriage, 
or healthy sexuality. It's a statement of God setting apart his, his partner, if you want to say it that way, right? That, that God is making this church an undefiled church. The Jewish people were a set-apart people, right? A young male virgin is preparing for his bride or preparing for his lifelong commitment. And we are being prepared for, for an eternal commitment set apart to worship God in, in joyous reality for eternity. So I would encourage you to think about that in that way, okay? And so if you're not Jewish or male or virgin or any of the three, it's okay. You're, if you are God's chosen people that we heard about in Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from his love, right? And he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. And so you're part of that. I believe that's symbolic 144,000. Let's look at verses 6 through 11 and the three angels who I adeptly am I'm going to call angel 1, 2, and 3, okay? Because uh, I don't know who they are. And there's lots of people who like to play games with figuring out the angels' names. They don't know. Okay. Uh, angel 1. Angel 1. He's flying with a, quote, unquote, eternal gospel. And this gospel is being proclaimed to the whole world, right? And that would have... I mean, in ancient times, when they first heard this, like, getting messages to the whole world, that's a big effort. I mean, they're trying really hard, and they've gotten a few hundred miles, maybe a thousand miles here and there, but that's really hard. But they're given this image that at one point, there'll be one messenger that somehow gets the message out to the whole world. And now we sit back with TikTok and other crazy things and go, oh, that's no big deal. It just has to go viral, right? Right? But we see it's something more than that, where people, it's going to be proclaimed and and somehow heard by different languages and tribes. And, and, and in a real sense, uh, God has been trying to declare his goodness for a long, long time. And in the, in the end scope of things, he's going to declare it in an abundantly clear way. But you know, Romans 1 tells us he's been trying to declare through his, his beautiful fingerprints in nature that his reality as creator, right? So I think one thing I want to say is God... God isn't withholding the gospel to just the end times where he's like, okay, I, I know I didn't share it with a bunch of you, so I want to check a bunch of you off my list, so I'm going to send a really big angel who's going to fly around the world and be really loud, and then all of you are going to get one last chance. God is a God who's been revealing good news and, and, and relationship, uh, the offer of relationship for a very long time uh, through all kinds of ways. And I know lots of people worry about the kid in some far-off country who lives in a hut or a shack who hasn't heard the name of Jesus. And I just want to share with you that my Jesus knows that kid in that shack. Right? He doesn't make a person he doesn't know. And, and if he, so he is, he is a God who's been revealing God's self throughout his created time. He doesn't make a person who is, is going to be unfairly going without hearing the gospel in some way. Right? So yes, he's going to declare his gospel in this abundantly obvious way in the end times, but God knows every soul right now. Now, our job is to say God, God wants us to be a part of sharing his gospel in the here and now, but, but he knows everybody right now. Okay? And he says, this is the eternal gospel that this angel shares, and it might strike you funny if you've heard of the gospel before. It says, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in church, you heard that the gospel is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16, okay? And that, that is a, a beautiful verse, but there is more to the gospel. Than, and, and loving God and fearing God actually go together, um, and so I want to just say to fear God is to be, I know it's, it's an unpopular phrase today, but to fear God is, is not the same as being scared of God or like being scared of the dark. The demons in this world are scared of God because they know God has authority, but they don't fear God reverently as the believer does. Let's think of it differently. The metaphor I'll use is the sun. I love the sun. How about you? We're here to S-U-N, okay? Uh, I, we're here today because of the sun, whether you appreciate that or not, right? We are. I love it. I love the food the sun provides. I, it's wonderful. We don't have anything without God setting up the sun, right? I mean, here's the other thing. I have some Irish lineage, and I also am, I fear the sun. 
I respect the sun deeply. I put on sunscreen when I'm going to be outside for lengthy amount of times because the sun is intense, right? It can burn me. It is millions and millions and millions of miles away. And its heat is being felt right now. We have no ability to control the temperature of this room. You understand this? I fight it all week long to get it this cool. And I never win in the summer because of that guy, the sun. It's amazing. And it's scary. And it, the sun can have magnetic things that happen and flares that happen and can affect our internet. How dare it? Right? That's intense. It doesn't even have internet. And it can affect my internet. I don't understand that. And we worship the, the God who made more of those than we know how to count. Really. I mean, we're still finding them and looking and figuring out new ways of measuring them. It's, it's amazing. And so to fear God, we can, I can love the sun and have a deep reverence and respect for it and know that its impacts and its flares can do intense things to my existence. Same with God on a whole nother level. God is holy and perfect and he is beautiful. Everything we have comes from him, including the sun. Life, breath, beauty, music, joy, laughter, everything. But he's not my buddy. I mean, Jesus Christ calls us friends, but I can't just treat him how I, I want. He's God. I treat him on the conditions of who God is. And, and I think in our age, we've lost some of that deep reverence. We're even afraid sometimes in church to say, I fear God. I wholly have this deep, holy reverence for God. And so, yeah, part of the gospel that the angel is proclaiming is like, hey, world, you need to recognize that the biggest, best message you can believe right now is to fear God. That would set a lot of things right. You fear acceptance more than you fear God. You fear not having a retirement account more than you fear God. Right? You fear what people say about you in the small towns more than you fear God. Fear God. That God, this is a loving message. But we don't hear it that way. It would save us from so much burning, from the burning of anxiety or the burning of false acceptance of others. And if we would just fear God and say, my identity is in God. I don't fear what people say. I don't fear the economy. Because God is God. He's going to take care of me. Whatever may come. Right? And the truth is, the angel wants us to know you cannot live now or in eternity. You cannot live well without God. And God doesn't want to lie to us. Now, one in our age can think they can and can think they will be fine after death without God. But one conversation I like to have with my friends when they're ready for it or family when they're ready for it is, well, what are you going to do for yourself after you're dead? It's kind of a weird question, but get them to think, don't you need somebody who's greater to death than death to help you with death? Fear God. Give Him glory. It may not sound like for God so loves the world, but it, it is. The God who loves the world and loves you, loves you with a holy, fierce, protective, eternal love and does not want you outside of that love. Dismissing that love, God knows, is unwise. And it is death. It is terrible. It is disintegration of the soul. If I were to be a space person or an astronaut or whatever, and I'd go out to space and say, I want to go into space on my own terms. I'm going to leave the space station. They don't have shuttles anymore, right, I guess. But I'm going to leave and I'm going to go out on a spacewalk. But I don't need the spacesuit. How's that going to go for me? It's not going to last long, and it's going to be very cold and then dead, right? We, we have a lot of people who've just been told they can go into eternity without any covering, or whatever covering they think is fine. They won't let you go up to space and you say, I'm just going to bring my sweatsuit. <laughs> I'm comfortable in that, right? The angel's telling us the truth. Fear God. God's way is the only way. Another messenger comes, the second messenger, the angel, and he says, fallen, fallen. 
Babylon has fallen. The Babylon out there, there's a lot of history of Babylon in the Bible. The, the, it goes back to the Tower of Babel is kind of the first mention in a way back old, old, old Testament. And, you know, Babel represents people trying to build up the, the Tower of Babel, build up a way of getting to God, getting to the divine experience on their own. And, and, and today we see it in the world, humans and corporations getting, getting people just getting drunk on the idea of their own pride, their own their own identity. We can build up our own identities. It says here, you're pouring out, they're pouring out their sexual immorality. This idea that our sexual appetites, our sexual desires are the most important thing about us. It's, it's a very dangerous lie in our culture. And I'm not picking on in one particular group. That's not my point. It's just that, just that if, if evil can reduce us to identifying with our appetites and desires, that's, that's the old trick of just us building up ourselves trying to reach divine experience rather than the good message of God coming to us. And we need to be careful of that. We live in a society where I think this, this angel is speaking to us and saying, don't make your feelings into God. Don't make your feelings into your identity. They're fallen, they're fallen. Babylon's fallen. The, the, the power, Babylon represents the powers of this world that are temporary they, they, they have all kinds of messages. Rome had all kinds of messages. We're bringing the real peace, right? But it was fallen. It was temporary. And we have these same temporary messages in our world today. Do what feels good to you. Find your own truth. Fallen, fallen are those truths. They are not strong enough for, you, for your soul to be held together. You will disintegrate if you, if you think that that is how you can exist in your life now or in eternity. They're not good enough. They won't save you from interstellar space, right, you could say. We still struggle with this, as human beings, this short-sighted powers, these Babel powers, Babylon powers, these selfish appetites that we can call greed, lust, control, gossip. See, Babylon is not just out there as an ancient Roman Empire or the United States of America or something like that, and, and there are connections to empires for sure, but there is a Babylon in us, a Babylon tendency in us. If we, for example, if we sure believe that, I'm glad Pastor Corey brought up that sexual immorality thing because I'm looking around here and I think there's some people or there's people definitely out there in the community. And you think God sure is going to bring down those Babylon types. Aha, there is the Babylon in you. Right? Your job, my job, is not to, to rip down the Babylon or Towers of Babels and other people, but to say, where am, am I building up my identity on judgment and self-righteousness and I'm better than other people? Jesus said, get that Tower of Babel out of your eye. Or he said, get that log out of your eye and love your neighbor, right? Yeah, you, you, don't worry, you can't flee from someone's sexual immorality for them, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18 for yourself, flee from sexual immorality. That's for yourself, so what do you struggle with? Stop being an expert on somebody else's issues and how about be an expert on your own, right? Colossians 3, 5 says, so put to death, put to death, that's strong language, right? Put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. God, am I saying fallen fallen may be the babylons of my heart where i care more about my appetites for money or lust or gossip lord may i have nothing to do with those things may i flee from those things because they're fallen they're not going to exist in the end okay angel three angel three judgment right judgment is announced for those who worship the beast and I tried to read it with a voice of sympathy because I, I like to think that the angel is declaring it with a voice of sympathy and compassion. The judgment is announced for those who worship the beast. God longs for all to be saved, but some will choose their own condemnation. Some will choose their own glory. Some will choose to be, to be filled with hatred instead of the love of God. And the lamb is still standing there because I think our lamb, according to the scriptures, longs for all people to be saved. And he's there standing by human beings that he's made who've chose to live like beastly creatures. But he's standing there not out of vindictiveness but out of compassion, holy compassion. 
saddened that they will never eternally want the lamb. That's sad. That there will be some who will eternally choose selfishness over wanting to be in God's presence. God's not going to force them to be in God's presence for eternity because they would hate it. This, these images of wrath and judgment, I know they're, they're disconcerting for many, but what they should do for the church is give us an urgency for those who are living in, in selfishness and rejecting the way of the Lamb. A friend put it to me recently. He said, condemnation is a choice of man, for God longs for all to be saved and has made the way to be clear. I, I, I want you to... Have, have this peace that no one is going to be unjustly condemned by God. There's not going to be some kid in a far-off hut or somebody that just accidentally slips into hell or, or this wrath. Judge, judgment is done by the holy, perfect God. He is the potter. We are the clay. He is going to do this thing perfectly. And so he is honestly telling us the truth. You don't want to be on the wrath side of that. Right? You want to be on the Lamb's side of that, who took the wrath for you already. So verses 12 and 13, it makes sense then that it follows this and says, so basically there's going to be all this that comes, you know, uh, so endure, church. Keep it up. Keep obeying. Keep the faith. These visions are given to to the people of faith, to the people of Christ, to encourage us to keep on serving and sharing, that others may see the love of Christ and the better way and choose not the selfish way of living, but Christ's better way. And then it says in verse 13, it says that blessed are we who are dead in the Lord, or who will be dead in the Lord. So let me just pre-bless you and say, blessed are you when you die in the Lord. It's true. We live in a culture, a death-denying culture, a death-fearing culture. And hopefully that's because we love life, but I think a lot of it's just out of the fear of the unknown and the fear of death. But the truth is for the believer... Blessed are the dead in the Lord. And this again is, a, is, a, is it's, it's deep truth for our endurance now. Life is going to get rough for many before they die. We know this. Let's not deny this. Very many of us, most of us, are going to die a natural death. For some of you, it's going to be more difficult or more painful than others. I've seen more than my fair share. I've been at more bedsides than the average Joe, I guess you could say. And some are beautiful and pretty, and some are very, very difficult. But here's the thing. Rest awaits all those who are in the Lord. I'm not going to have some weird theological debate about that and what does that mean about do I sleep while I'm dead in the grave and that kind of stuff because that's not where the Scripture goes. It just goes to the promise. You're blessed and you get rest. So endure now. And don't stop believing, as Journey would say, don't stop believing that that God's love is for you, right? Don't think your suffering, your disease that you have now is evidence that God is done with you. No, no, no. God has said, you're going to have bad stuff happen, but I will give you rest. That's my promise. Verses 14 through 16. This is tough stuff as well. The Son of Man puts in his sharp sickle. And, and, and if you're an astute reader, you notice that the Son of Man is sitting there with his sharp sickle, but he doesn't put it in until an angel tells him what to do. And yes, the Son of Man is Jesus Christ the Lord, so the Son of Man is taking instructions from an angel. Yes, that's how it says. Why? Because in this eternal, beautiful mystery called the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit take on different roles And the Son, in His service to the Father and to us, humanity, has chosen not to know the day and the hour for, I think, very deep reasons. He's chose not to know the day and the hour of the end and His return. It's very clear in Scripture. So I think that He can be fully invested. But at one point, He is going to take the order for the end to come, and it will be His coming, right? His return. And so this is that moment in an image where the angel obviously comes from the Father with an order. It's now time, Jesus. It's time. This is a big deal, what we hear there. It's time to harvest. And just trust, friends, that it's God's perfect timing and perfect harvesting. And none will be missed. And God is not going to let a good harvest go to waste, right? 
God is going to reap what God's grace has planted and grown, and he will bring his harvest home. And this should be encouraging, that God has a season. It's not, he has a season and a plan. But then let's move off verses 14 through 16, and we see the next thing, 17 through 20. We see the angel and then another angel, and we see these grapes of wrath, um, you know, this picture of the harvest of wrath. Pictured as grapes, frankly, because you can squish grapes and then it, it looks like blood. That's the image we're given here. And a judgment of wrath comes upon those who have chosen their earthly life to be used for selfishness, for, for self-glory rather than living for God's love. And we don't stand here as judge, and that's really good news, and you're not judge, I'm not judge, but we cannot deny that in the scriptures, both the gospels and throughout the letters of the New Testament and in Revelation and in the prophets of the Old Testament, God's clear that there will be a reckoning and a judgment, that, that there will be. And we in our modern mind might want to whitewash that out, but we have to clear out a lot of scriptures if we do that. But I take peace in the fact that God is perfect and just and wise and holy and knows what is the right thing to do, right? But I, I got to tell you, this is a gruesome picture if you let it be what it is, that these human beings are represented as grapes pressed in a wine pressed or as they still do today, but much more often then, you know, in a vat where people are jumping up and down and squishing grapes. And then the image is 1600 stadia or a river of blood as high as a horse's bridle. Depends on the size of the horse, I guess, right? We can hope it's a mini horse, but it might be a big horse. 184 miles. You know, that's a, that's, that's a, that's just a terrible image. But it's in the scripture, right? And, and frankly, some could say that, how dare God do that? His own blood. I mean, he made those people. But what if God is sharing with us the real consequences of how humans treat each other when they have an absence of God. We've seen some of it in our own time, right? What if this is actually mercy? I think it is. Humans without restraint, without fear of government penalties or fear of knowledge of somebody finding out, what would people do to each other? How much blood would flow if people were just allowed to, to do whatever came to their base thoughts? And, and so if there are people that are living completely selfishly, rejected the Lamb of God, living out their baser natures, how much blood would that be? I don't know. But there's been a lot of blood that has flowed on battlefields of people giving their lives, their children to some emperor or dictator or leader for no real good cause at all in many wars. And many of those wars even using religion as the justification, right? And so I think God in his end time plan is saying, who, who are you? How dare you destroy my babies, my, my sons and daughters or think that elderly lives as some countries are now doing the lives of the elderly are infirm or not valuable who are you maybe God is saying back to us how dare you humanity I'm the God who loved you so much I came into this world to rescue you from your blood-flowing ways. And yeah, one day I'm going to make it all right. And in eternity, yeah, those battlefields aren't going to exist. In eternity, those ways where you dismiss those with, without rights and those on the margin, those aren't going to exist. But to do that, I am going to have to pour out my wrath on those who would not live in the way of the Lamb. But in the meantime, you know the truth? He came and bore the wrath as the Lamb for who would ever want to be with him 
So all we have to do to escape this river, or if you know somebody who you're afraid is going to be in that river, is to say he already took a river of wrath upon himself. Have we thought? I mean, this is a lot of blood here, right? But how much do we think about the billions upon billions of people that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, Son of God, died for on the cross? How much darkness the perfect Son of God, an eternal being, how much did he experience? And what did that, what was that like? We can't even imagine it. But he bore it, he experienced it. And in some ways, it's, it's an ongoing sacrifice. We as the church believe that the Son of God is still in bodily form, still bearing the wounds for what he did for us. Yes, he's the eternal King of kings, but the Godhead, the Godhead bore our wrath, and in some way, this is dangerous theology, but in some way, suffered change for us. Who are we to not appreciate that? And to come back and say, how dare you, God? We don't even need to exist. He didn't need to save us by his own death. There is nothing in, that says we deserve eternity just because we're human. And so these not-so-pretty pictures are about God being honest with us. They're not fun to imagine. I get that. But they're given so they, they won't be our future. They're, they're going to be part of the future, but they need not be your future. God does not want to destroy people. He, God loves people. God longs to save people. Ultimately, he's going to give the reality, though, of the image that they are, the identity that they are. If their appetites were most important for them, they will just have their appetites for all of eternity without the presence of God. Let's see how that works for you, right? But if they were about love and caring for the needs of others and praising that which is good and beautiful and the source of all goodness, then they will have that for eternity. So the main point is quite simple. We saw in chapter 13 that evil is going to try to stop God's plan and harvest. But the lamb keeps winning. It's not going to work. And Jesus is going to get his harvest. So a couple of life lessons to wrap up. I know this has been a long message today. And maybe you're hating the sun right now. S-U-N, okay. Because it's getting warm. I get it. But some life lessons. For the believer, death is rest. Death is rest, but life is mission. God has you here and now, not just in this service, I'm saying, but on earth, this time, this, this, this set of relationships you have for a purpose. Believe it. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though they die, yet shall they live. That's John 11. You will die, but if you are in the Lord, that you will be blessed, you will have rest. So share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Use your life as a mission to reflect the love of God, the love of the Lamb. Do others know what your life identity is about? And do you fear death? Because that might say something about your life identity. Don't fear death, fear God. Fear God who loves you and can work all things together for good. And believe that God has things for you to do and as long as you have breath in your lungs, he has something for you to do in your life. Last thing. Our perspectives on the future drive our hope for today. If we think there will be no judgment, then we might accidentally support a world that is hurtling towards living without restraints. We might like the idea of no judgments, but, but how is that working for us? Dr. Phil moment as a group here, okay? Um, the young people are like, Dr. Who? Okay, anyway, uh, <laughs> your future perspective drives your hope for today. I would encourage you not, not to include wrath and judgment in your future because you like it, but because it's the truth and we care and there are consequences for living in unhealthy ways and selfish ways. And believe this about the future as well. God is in control. 
No fear. No anxiety in the present is needed. God is in control. Oh God, I thank you for uh, being our hope, our true hope. I thank you for being the antidote to fear and anxiety. I thank you for the true gospel that, that you are God and that we need to rightly revere you, fear you. Tremble at how deep your love is for us that you on that Friday took darkness beyond our imagination upon yourself at the cross. You are the servant God. You are the lamb. Slain and yet alive. And the spirit that raised you from the dead lives in us. So while we have breath in our lungs, may we live to share your love. May we live like the Lamb. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> those who are in the Lamb, who have faith in the Lamb, um, just fly through those. Um, oh, yeah, I'm going to pause on that, actually. If you want to be a VBS prayer partner, Waming brought that up earlier. I think it's on the Connect card. Let us know. That's, that's important. And if you want to check those other things, too, that's cool. Uh, but I want to highlight that BBS prayer partner. We want a bunch of people praying, and we could make a list. You could get a daily email or text um, so that you have things to be praying for. Uh, but we're going to sing uh, Redeemed, I believe. Hello, friends. I truly pray that this message blessed you. And if you want to find out more about our ministries or listen to other messages or videos of our worship services, you can check us out at palousechurch.org or search for Palouse Church on YouTube or check us out on Facebook or we are on uh, the Bible app. There's different ways to find us. You can always email me, Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, at palousechurch.org uh, to connect with me or to send me a prayer request. We really appreciate you connecting with us in this way and may God bless your day.